Martin Luther was the most important figure in initiating the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation is certainly the most important political and theological and religious change in Christianity in the last five or perhaps ten centuries, certainly since Eastern Orthodox Christianity split off. And the Protestant Reformation is largely a Northern European response to the Catholic Church, to its abuses. Uh, it is most popular in the northern parts of Europe. It ultimately becomes uh, dominant in the Scandinavian Peninsula and in England and in the northern parts of Germany. And Luther is the leading light of the Reformation. There is no one who is more important in generating the tremendous political and theological and military consequences of this of these changes from the pre-Reformation church to the church that has to deal with these new reformed Protestant religions. And he's important for a number of reasons. First, because he comes initially. He's the leading light. He's the, the spark that generates the flame of the, of the Reformation. There are earlier reformers who attempt to reform Catholicism from within, but they fail fairly continuously in the previous century. Luther initially did not intend to provoke uh, the kind of political and military dislocation that was associated with the Protestant Reformation. In fact, he is an extremely conservative thinker. What Luther intended to do was to cleanse the church of borrowings and of traditions that had insinuated themselves within the body of church doctrine for which there is no scriptural justification. Luther's famous phrase, sola fide, sola scriptorum, means by faith alone and by scripture alone. In other words, for a human being to be be justified in God's sight, for a human being to be saved or blessed, the only way that that can happen is, in the Augustinian sense, by faith and by scripture. It is not possible to do so by works or by rituals or by any of the traditions that have accumulated or had accumulated on Catholicism up to the time in which he wrote. Now, he lived between 1483 and 1546, but his great achievement, or the achievement for which he is most noted, is the 1517 nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of the cathedral. He was a biblical scholar, he was a professor of biblical theology, and for that reason, disputation was a normal part of his activities as a scholar. But the very ignitable substance of his theses generated a political firestorm that Luther himself never anticipated. The theses themselves were about the Catholic activity or the the uh, activity at the time of selling indulgences. And I have to explain a little bit what an indulgence is and how this works for us to understand um, the, the, the kind of criticism that Luther is leveling. The idea that God judges people when they die, sends them either to heaven or hell, is supplemented by the idea that there's a purgatory, a place where people that haven't committed damnable sins but are not sanctified in God's sight can work off the punishments and thus eventually become sanctified. Now, this punishment that's not eternal, which is what the idea of purgatory is, was seized upon by certain elements in the Catholic Church, particularly politically ambitious popes, who needed money to, fin to finance wars and other political activities, um, decided that it would be a good idea to sell indulgences. So what that means is essentially that you could buy a get-out-of-hell-free card or get-out-of-purgatory-free card, something like the, the Monopoly piece. Right? If you get the part, well, then you just present it at the gate and you don't have to suffer for your sins. It would be hard to think of any idea that is less consistent with the spirit of Christianity than paying some money and being 
being, and, and getting a chance to avoid the uh, consequences of one's sins. So Luther was looking at that sort of abuse and at the series of accumulated abuses that had insinuated themselves within Catholicism, and he says, no, this is intolerable. We cannot put up with this. Now, Luther himself was an extraordinarily devout individual. You can't take anything away from the seriousness of his piety. For most of his life, he had been a fairly uh, unsurprising follower of Catholicism. He, his sins were not remarkable. He was not like St. Augustine, a real bad boy when he was young. His sins were relatively mild, and he had such a powerful religious faith that he was easily moved, easily driven into the choice of becoming an Augustinian friar. Now stop and think about what it means to be an Augustinian friar. It's not like being just a Dominican or a Jesuit or any of the other um, orders within Catholicism. To be a, uh, an Augustinian means that you are following in that Augustinian tradition. Luther knew Augustine's work very thoroughly. He knew City of God, he knew the Confessions, he knew some of Augustine's uh, theological work. And the emphasis that we find in Augustine on, first of all, human depravity, that irremediable problem of human original sin, which means that we have to wait for God's inscrutable grace in order to be saved, well, that idea is borrowed from Augustine and radicalized in Luther because God's inscrutable grace will turn out to be the key towards developing the sort of religious faith by which you can be saved, and religious faith will turn out to be the only thing which saves a believer. Now, um, Eric Erickson wrote a very fine book called Young Man Luther, in which he talked about Luther's early life and his conversion experience. And what he, I mean, he's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and a very interesting reading is what he offers for Luther's decision to become an Augustinian monk. He's in the midst of a thunderstorm, and it terrifies him, and a tree nearby is struck by lightning. And the awesome and terrifying force of this storm causes him to cry out in a moment of panic, by Saint Anne, I will become a monk if I am spared. Well, it turns out, import, very importantly for the history of the West, that he was spared, and he was sufficiently devout to take his oath uttered under great duress seriously. He decided that he would give up a promising career in the law, because he had a, a, a legal education prior to entering, um, the, uh, entering holy orders, and he decided that he would devote himself to God and to celestial things, but particularly he wanted um, an order which would be particularly rigorous and strict. He wanted insofar as possible to remove himself from earthly temptations. So the fact that he was an Augustinian friar will help us understand why later on he is going to be caught up and centrally focused on the idea of sin, grace, and faith. Central themes that are lifted directly from Augustine and modernized and put into a new context when we come to Luther. Now, his religiosity is of a powerful and fervent nature. He is well known for his statement in 1521 to the Diet of Worms. This was when, uh, of Worms, when Catholicism decided that it had to deal with Luther, when Luther obviously posed a great threat. He was asked to recant what we regarded as heresies. He was told that he would be driven out of his academic and ecclesiastical position, and in fact, he would suffer the fate of all heretics. Luther, bravely and to his great credit, to his everlasting credit, um, said, here I stand, I can do no other. You must prove me wrong by scripture or I will not accept the proof. That was a tremendously dangerous and courageous decision. It is very clear that Martin Luther has a powerful and independent conscience. And if there is nothing else that he enjoins upon the believing Christian, it is that 
is that religious belief and matters of personal conscience are central and that you cannot be saved by any sort of ritual adherence, by any sort of externality. It is only the state of your soul and your willingness to lay everything on the line for your religious beliefs that makes possible salvation. Salvation is given to those who get God's grace and who manage by faith alone to be saved. Luther was, before he actually wrote uh, and published the 95 Theses, spent a great deal of time studying scripture and publishing uh, works on the scriptures. His uh, remarks on Romans and his remarks on the Psalms in particular emphasize this notion of faith and that by faith you are saved. Um, particularly the, pa the passage in Romans 117 where it says, he who, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Luther spent a great deal of time meditating on Romans. Romans was clearly his favorite of Paul's epistles. And what he likes about it, or what, it seemed, what seems to be most important about uh, Romans for Luther, is the fact that it allows him to centrally focus on faith and eliminate the idea of a doctrine of works, which had gradually moved into Christianity and gradually become a, a decisive factor in the Catholic view of Scripture. Now, the downside in some ways is that Luther, in the first place, was rather contemptuous of reason. He often thought that the tradition of Athens led people astray. It's not that he was incapable of understanding Aristotle or Plato. He had a very deep and powerful intellect. The problem was is that, as he described it, reason was the devil's whore. And he thought that Aristotle had led Christianity astray and that the scholastics had done a great evil to Christian believers by trying to reconcile Athens and Jerusalem through scholastic logic chopping. What Luther is trying to do is break through that scholastic logic chopping and get rid of that Aristotelian tradition. The downside of this, I mean, apart from perhaps its contemptuous connection to, to reason and to the Athenian tradition, is the fact that there's a certain sort of messianic tendency in Luther. As he said in a letter of 1522, I do not admit my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even by angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot come to salvation. That's a rather grand claim for someone who is not trying to spark a tremendous political and moral and intellectual upheaval in Western Europe. He certainly seems to vacillate between uncertainty in himself and an absolute certainty in his own righteousness when he feels that he is infused with the Spirit of God. The problem is, is that sometimes from the outside it is not easy to decide how to think about that. It has its attractive and unattractive qualities. Now, his theological work is enormous. Luther was, like so many German philosophers, wonderful at producing publications. He could write and write and write, and there are few people who produced a larger body of work on a larger variety of biblical texts. And I'd like to think about three texts in particular today because they all date from 1520, just prior to Luther's being judged at the Diet of Worms. He has already nailed up the theses in 1517. He has sparked a kind of controversy in intellectual circles and in ecclesiastical circles in Western Europe. And he is now trying to appeal to various audiences with various kinds of arguments. And the way in which he phrases his arguments, the language in which he phrases his arguments, and the kind of arguments he makes taken together form something analogous to a Copernican revolution in religion. In other words, what Copernicus was to astronomy, in some ways, Luther was to religion. He changed our entire orientation. He made us think that what previously had been settled and fixed was in flux and dynamic. He made us think that what was previously in flux and in change and becoming now became fixed. We move from a conception of religiosity and a conception of salvation, which is centered around the group, 
centered around the institution of the church in particular, and centered around the sacraments, to a new conception of religiosity, a new conception of salvation, and a new perspective in, on how to think about religious matters. We move from the group to the individual. We move from the outside to the inside. We move from a doctrine of works and a doctrine perhaps corrupt like selling indulgences to a doctrine that is incorruptible, one would hope, the doctrine that by faith alone, by a change infused in your soul by the grace of God, that and only that is the way to salvation. So we have fundamentally changed the perspective that Western Europe has on the process by which people are saved and justified, but also implicit in that is the fact that for the first time, the great weight of Catholic tradition, the great institutional burden of the Catholic Church has been lifted from Western Europe. And not just from the kings and princes who ran Western Europe, it has been lifted from the individual. You no longer need the mediation of the church in order to find out what scripture says. You no longer need the rituals of, uh, of things like uh, penance or the rituals like uh, marriage or any of the sacraments which Luther thinks are unscriptural. We no longer need those as an avenue to holiness. In fact, we find uh, the kingdom of God is within us. As the, as the gospel says. And Luther says, if the kingdom of God is to be found, it is only to be found in your soul. And there is no way that we can tell the state of your soul. Only you and God know that. So God's inscrutable grace is what will give you faith, and by faith alone are you saved. Now the first of his great treatises of 1520 is called To the Christian Nobility of the German, nat German Nation. And it's written in German. This is a very unusual thing. First of all, the printing press is a relatively new invention and is going to have enormous implications for the Protestant Reformation. It is, I think, arguable that one of the things that impeded the progress of the Reformation of the Church in earlier centuries was the difficulty of disseminating these doctrines. The Church was quite effective at finding troublemakers, at finding heretical firebrands, and eliminating them. The problem is that although they could find Luther, they couldn't find all of his books, and they couldn't find all of the printing presses. And for that reason, the change in the technology of communication is one of the things that should not be ignored when you consider the Protestant Reformation. In other words, it is true to say that the Protestant Reformation is a largely theological question. Eventually, it turns out to have political and military consequences. And certainly there are technological underpinnings to it. But do not exclusively focus on the questions of technology, or rather the questions of religion. In fact, it, is, it only begins as a theological problem. It mushrooms out to cover all of Western culture. Now in this book, To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation, Luther essentially ends the Middle Ages, which is an enormous achievement. And the way in which he does that is by ending the distinction in classes. He undoes the distinction between the, the spiritual classes and the secular classes. It had been the case that clerics had been only accountable to the church. They had been covered only by canon law, and there were a special set of regulations that covered them, and they did not directly report to the, sec to the secular civil authorities. What Luther does is say, no, this is improper. In fact, there's no distinction between the, sp the spiritual classes and the secular classes. He argues instead for the priesthood of all believers. And this is part of that Copernican revolution. There was a time when most people would have to go to a priest for absolution, would have to go to a priest for the things that will make it possible to enter the domain of religious um, salvation, would make it be part of the Christian community. No longer is that necessary. 
since we have the priesthood of all believers, we no longer need a separate clerical class with separate identities and separate laws and a separate set of institutions that applies to them. This, in some ways, is the institutional and theological end of the Middle Ages. Once the, everyone is a priest, it raises the question of why do we need bishops and priests and deacons and abbots and monks and it would seem that if all are priests, if all Christian believers are priests, the necessary conclusion that we are to draw is that the institutions of the church are corrupt and the priests that they support are superfluous. This is obviously a revolutionary doctrine. Now, in addition to going after the distinction between the secular and spiritual classes, Luther also attacks and undermines the papal claim to being the sole authority for interpreting scripture. He says, no, in fact, all Christian believers are supposed to have access to the word, and the idea of restricting access to the word to an authoritative and self-appointed group of interpreters is both unscriptural and unchristian because it impedes the progress of religious conversion and religious devotion within the souls of the individual believers. Clearly, this is going to tend to undermine the claims of the papacy, first of all, and if you're going to make all of, Catholic, uh, of the Catholic clergy irrelevant, you might as well go for the gold and eliminate the validity of the papacy as well. And since it appears to Luther that the papacy is an unscriptural usurpation of power within the church, he understands himself to be cleansing the church of tyrannous traditions that, he is, that it has accumulated despite the injunctions of Scripture. So Luther does not, initially at least, think of himself as a revolutionary. He thinks of himself, in fact, as an old-fashioned kind of reformer. He feels that the right thing to do is to drive the church back to its roots, to eliminate those pagan holdovers which he associates with Rome itself. And most importantly in this book, and this is the third big issue that gets raised in to the Christian nobility of the German nation, Luther attacks the power of the papacy over secular rulers. And this was a stroke of genius. I'm not sure that Luther was actually doing the Machiavellian calculations. It's very hard to know what a man like Luther considers when he writes something like this because he is so saturated in theological questions and he is extraordinarily devout. And yet it does turn out to be, well, suspicious, or at least, well, interesting, that Luther decides in this theological treatise in which he tries to break the hold of the papacy over the, uh, the in lives of individual believers, that he does throw a bone to those nominally Christian princes and kings and political officials who dominate the fragmented state of Germany and say, in saying, look, we have previously been tithing ourselves, sending a certain percentage of our money to Rome, sending our money for indulgences, sending all sorts of taxes and finance to Rome. What if that is a usurpation? We get to keep all that money. We get to keep all that power. And not only is that politically useful, it is scriptural, it is divine, it is approved of by God. A comforting doctrine like that cannot help but find a happy audience right, in German politicians. And the further away they are from Rome, the more, more attractive it turns out they find that. Lutheranism makes its greatest inroads in northern Germany. The further you are from Rome, the more likely the Protestant Reformation is to work. The closer you are to it, the easier it is for the papal authorities to keep people in line. A doctrine like this is very tempting, even for those who have not been saved by faith alone.
Now, a second great work from 1520, before he goes on, I mean, it's just after he finishes the, to the Christian nobility in August, in October, he writes a piece called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Now, this obviously harkens back to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and to the period of time, it's narrated in the book of Isaiah, where the chosen people are taken and enslaved to a pagan king who in fact is the hand of God chastising his evil and unrighteous people. And what Luther says in the Babylonian captivity is directed towards a clerical audience. There's a different set of people he wants to talk to, so naturally he makes a different set of arguments. It goes over different ground. He writes it in Latin, and very clearly he's writing it for educated people, and that means essentially clerics at the time that he's writing. So he writes on the Babylonian captivity of the church with the intention of bringing to his side certain clerics who are amenable to this new idea of the priesthood of all believers. In the first case, in the Babylonian captivity, he attacks the sacramental system. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. After looking over scripture very carefully, Luther concludes that only, initially he concludes that three of the sacraments are valid and four are not valid. The ones he thinks are valid are the Lord's Supper, baptism, and confession. Towards the end of his life, confession, or the sacrament of penance, is given up as also being unscriptural. So at the end of his life, Luther only believes in two of the seven sacraments. Now, not only does he argue that the sacramental system is unscriptural, but he also says that every true sacrament, and there are only two of them, it turns out, at the end of his life, is a form of the word. Now that seems like a rather innocuous and perhaps vague and, I don't know, nebulous kind of an idea. But if you tease out some of the implications, you will find them to be quite revolutionary. If it's true that sacraments are a form of the word, and the word has been given to all Christian believers, right, because that is their common property as Christian believers, hearers of the word, the word of God, in the beginning was the word, well, if it turns out that a true sacrament is a form of the word, then one of the implications is that we don't need a special group a special clerical group, a special group of priests to take care of sacramental problems. The implications of this are decidedly anti-clerical and they were sufficiently revolutionary to generate repercussions all over Western Europe when Henry VIII wrote or at least uh, published a book under his name called The Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which was in fact written by Thomas More. The reason why he did this, the thing that provoked it, was Luther's attack on the sacraments. So there's a constant back and forth between those elements who are pushing for fairly radical reforms within the church and those who are dragging their feet looking for minor reforms, and here I would think of people like Erasmus or Thomas More, and the true reactionaries who said, I want to defend things like, a paper, like a, the selling of indulgences and things like that. It's the fact that the center group that wanted to engage in a process of reform that wouldn't lead to schism and wouldn't lead to the wars of the Reformation, the fact that they weren't able to take over the center means that the only way out is the radical course that Luther ultimately does take. Now, the, the last one of his three great works from 1520 is called The Freedom of a Christian Man, and this is one of the great landmarks in the history of Western theology. It is a conciliatory, open letter to Pope Leo, and this is very different in tone from the earlier two works because they are far from conciliatory, they are quite belligerent. Here, by writing this open letter, he is trying to avoid being condemned as a heretic, but he's also, strangely enough, trying to avoid the Protestant Reformation. What he wants to do is cleanse the church and get rid of these many abuses. He does not wish to cause internal discord 
And he does not want military consequences of this. He would prefer that these reforms be kept within the framework of the church, and he thinks, at least at this point, that that is still possible. So it's written in Latin, although Luther eventually translated it into German, too, so that it could be read by a wider populace. And he makes the argument that without faith, man is completely egocentric and incapable of free will. This, if you'll stop and think about it, is essentially an Augustinian argument. We need God's inscrutable grace. If you think about um, Book 7 of Augustine's Confessions, where he has intellectually understood that Manichaeanism is wrong and that Catholicism is the right doctrine, and yet he is unable to make the jump until Book 8 when he reads Scripture and the grace of God infuses into him. The key thing is that we cannot have faith. We cannot be saved unless we get the grace of God. Luther is borrowing those Augustinian themes and radicalizing them here in the freedom of a Christian man. So it turns out that prior to getting God's grace, freedom is just not possible. We are all enslaved to this world. We are all the creatures of sin. That's one possible and very radical reading of the idea of original sin. There's no such thing as free will among the vast majority of the world. Only those who are given God's grace have free will. There's no guarantee that they will use their free will properly. It's entirely possible, once God illuminates your life, that you should go out and do wicked things. You but then, and only then, do you have the choice of whether you shall do good or whether you shall do evil. Prior to that, there is no choice. You are simply damned for all time. You are incapable of wanting the good. Uh, later on, this idea will be extrapolated and developed into a uh, Part of Kant's moral theory, those of you who know the foundations of the metaphysics of morals know that Kant says that the only good thing is a good will. Well, it turns out that many of the kind of embryonic ideas of German philosophy are going to be founded by Luther. Although he is an important theologian and an important political figure, do not underestimate the significance of his philosophical contributions. They have to be changed somewhat and modified in the course of Western history, but many of the protean ideas are to be found here if you will dig through it. Now, Taking these books together, what we find is that we have a, a doctrine of faith as opposed to works, and this is, this is Luther's way of jettisoning Aristotle, jettisoning the tradition of Athens, which he thinks has adulterated and corrupt, corrupted the tradition of Western Christianity. Remember that Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics says that the, uh, that the good man is, has good habits and habitually does good things? Well, Luther flatly denies that. He says that there's no necessary connection between being a good man and doing works that we would be inclined to describe as praiseworthy. It is entirely possible to do good things and be an evil man, and it is also possible to be an evil man and have the grace of God infuse you just before you die and you may not have done any good works. There is no necessary connection between faith and works. He is moving away from a doctrine of externalities. He is also giving up on Aristotle and giving up on the Aristotelian tradition that has been incorporated into scholastic philosophy. If you stop and think about what the previous three or four or five hundred years of Western religious and philosophical uh, development were like, they were all the incorporation of the Aristotelian tradition into the tradition of Christian religion. Luther is just tearing that page out of the book of history and saying, we do not need this, this is corrupt. Now, in addition to formulating a tremendously powerful and important political and theological doctrine, it's worth noting here that Luther is very, very influential in constructing what one historian called the German idea of freedom. And what, what I mean by the German idea of freedom is this. The growth of personal political freedoms has been one of the main themes in the last 
oh, 500 years or so of Western philosophy. And there have been different strands, conceptions of what freedom might be. In the Anglo-American tradition, we have a connection between freedom and democracy. That, it develops actually later in the history of political thought. In the German tradition, we don't see that. It turns out that Luther connects freedom to individuality and to individual conscience. But you will note that when these states become free of the papacy and free of the control of the Catholic Church, they still have these old quasi-feudal hierarchies left in them. We've gotten rid of one hierarchy, the ecclesiastical hierarchy, but that is not the same thing as connecting this newfound freedom with democracy. In other words, within the tradition of German political thought, there is no obvious or foundational connection between freedom and democracy. And this is going to have the, the greatest and most important consequences for the later development of German thought. Think of someone like Hegel, who's always talking about the philosophy of freedom and the gradual increase in freedom in the West. Hegel thought he was a good Lutheran. Hegel was not a Democrat. Worth noting. I'll be able to extrapolate that on that a little bit later. Now, further considerations that we should think about that when we examine Luther's work. In the first case, Luther has a formative influence on the German language. It, his influence on German is incalculable. He is in the right place at the right time. It is, he is in the midst, at the center, of a theological controversy which involves all of Europe and particularly involves all of German-speaking Europe. And the printing press is in place now so that his words can be magnified and amplified and pushed all across German-speaking Europe. The key thing here is that Luther has as much influence on the development of the written or printed German language as Shakespeare has on the written, printed development of the English language. He is in the right place at the right time. He is the canonical stylist, the first great stylist of the German language. And this has tremendous influence on the subsequent development of German philosophy, but also on the subsequent development of the language itself. Um, Beyond that, he makes, the, he makes an argument, or I'd be inclined to say that he was, within the German vernacular, the first great writer. Prior to that, all, virtually all writing had been clerical and it had virtually all been in Latin. This is the first great set of bestsellers. Now, bestsellers about the sacraments may strike you as kind of odd, but at the time, given the climate of opinion and the uh, intellectual matrix in which people were working, nothing could be of greater import or of greater interest. So Luther was a best-selling author, as opposed, uh, in addition to being a theologian and a political figure. Um, he generated a number of very interesting readings of the Bible, and most importantly, he translated the Bible from Latin into German. And this is of great consequence. Shakespeare is important in English, but the Bible is even more foundational, not just in English, but also in German. Luther's translation is the German translation of the Bible. It is the German version of Christianity. This bowing to the vernacular, while it may cloud the intellectual elements of biblical research, makes it a powerfully democratic force. And it has tremendous political repercussions that people should actually be able to get a copy of Luther's Bible and read it and decide for themselves what they believe. Sola fide, sola scriptorum, by faith alone and by scripture alone. We need both. Luther makes that possible. In his preface to the German uh, uh, translation of the Bible, he makes a number of very interesting arguments, and he states some of his hermeneutic principles, which turn out to be of great use when we go back and read his theological writings. He says, first of all, do not make a Moses out of Christ. Now, that's a very peculiar idea in some ways. It depends on how you read it. 
On one level, it is obviously true. If the idea is that Christ adds something to the Mosaic law, the new covenant adds something to the old covenant, we've superseded somehow the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, well then, I can understand what he's driving at there. On the other hand, there are certain Gospels. If you think of something like the Gospel of Matthew, which is organized into five parts as an imitation of the Pentateuch, and we have a constant replacement and addition of Christ injunctions to the Mosaic injunctions, when Jesus says in Matthew, uh, you have heard X, but I tell you Y, you have heard A, but I tell you B. The connection between the law of Jesus and the law of Moses is very complex. Luther tended to go to one extreme. There would be arguments that you could make in both ways, but the, uh, the stance that Luther takes has very much to do with the way in which he reads Scripture and the hierarchy that he creates of the books of the Bible, which in some ways are a very unique and interesting contribution. Luther stated, that these are the truest and noblest books of the New Testament. Now, how he finds out which are the truest and noblest, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think he's making an argument about, say, a spurious book having been smuggled into the Bible. He's making an argument about theological primacy or supremacy or importance, and I'm not sure how we would go about proving such a proposition. But here's what he says about the books of the Bible. He says the best and most important are John's Gospel and the First Epistle of John. And then, of course, Paul, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. Now, he spends a tremendous amount of time glossing Paul to the Romans. You will be saved by faith alone. Your faith has saved you. Only faith is going to save you. It would seem that the Pauline version of Christianity is the Lutheran version of Christianity in spades. Paul is the decisive influence on Luther's conception of Scripture. He likes Peter's first epistle as well, and then everything else is a great downhill slide once we get past his favorite books of the Bible. And it's remarkable what he leaves out here. All three of the synoptic gospels are of secondary significance, which is a remarkable turn of events, and it's a very peculiar theological stance. In addition to that, he says that the epistle of James is really an epistle of straw. I think what that means is that he doesn't like it. And the reason why he doesn't like it is because James says that works will save you, not faith. And you can see why, if you want to make the argument that it's only faith that will save you, not works, that you want to get rid of that. Here's the difficulty. How does one go about finding out which of the epistles are the straw ones? Isn't this really a Procrustean way of going back and saying, here are the books of the Bible that are consistent with my theological views, here are the ones that are inconsistent, and then after saying that, also say that it's Scripture alone and faith alone that will save you. There is more than a little bit of juggling the intellectual books going on here, and I would not be inclined to say that Luther is the only one that does that. His Catholic antagonists are at least as bad and at least as disingenuous in, re in attempting to refute him. But there is a certain amount of, if not arbitrariness, a certain amount of, well, uncomfortably messianic certainty about what the true and important books of the Bible are, and the idea of informing the world that the synoptics are just not all that important, um, is not easy to find convincing. I can see that he may have found such a proposition useful. I wonder what the argument for such a proposition would be. How do you go about 15 centuries after the, the book's been written? How do you find out which of the four Gospels is the best? So there is a certain degree of play and flexibility here, but let us give it the charitable reading. He was trying to inform people that were ignorant of Scripture where they should go for their immediate edification. I do not believe that he would have had us eliminate any of the books of the Bible, but I have a feeling that he would have done a tremendous amount of overt and very dubious special pleading to get out from under the epistle of James.
Right? If it says works, and he's going to emphasize the importance of faith alone, well, then you have to do quite a bit of finessing in order to make this idea of the epistle of James being straw to make that work. Now, let's stop and think and finish off in our consideration of Luther by examining his political theology. He was not primarily a political thinker. And yet, it's arguable that he has as much influence on the development of political thought in the West as someone like Marx. He had, everyone had to answer him. Within the century, you had to either be a Lutheran or an anti-Lutheran, but everyone had some opinion. You could not remain indifferent to the challenges presented by the Protestant Reformation. It split Christianity in a way that was unprecedented, and it generated a whole series of political and military in interventions that did justice and did credit to neither side. A third of the population of Germany was killed during the wars of the Reformation. So that means that they lose not just people, but also property and also the advantages of civilization and culture, which they may have accumulated during that century. So everyone on both sides wants to point the finger at the other and wants to lay the blame at someone else's door. In fact, the repercussions of the Lutheran Reformation are everyone's problem and everyone's fault, and most of the behavior does credit to neither side. Um, he was, strangely enough, an authoritarian political thinker. Now, in some ways, we can kind of see that in the, the, the degree of desk-pounding that he does in his theological writing. But also, if you stop and think about it, um, the, he never really shrugged off the traditions of hierarchy. He didn't threaten, for example, landed aristocracy. He didn't uh, develop the democratic political implications that are buried in the marrow of Protestantism. He, in fact, eschewed these implications. In fact, he wrote against them and wrote quite vehemently against the dem democratizing implications in the Reformation. Uh, he said in, in one of his books, uh, let's see, uh, he wrote a piece in 1523 called On Governmental Authority, in which he was consistently authoritarian, and later in his life his works get even more explicitly authoritarian. Um, there's a fine piece written in 1525 called Against the Murdering, Thieving Hordes of Peasants. You see, it turns out that when the pot boils, all kinds of things rise to the the surface, and many of the discontents of the German peasantry had found a vehicle for expression during the turmoil connected with the Reformation. Luther was horrified by this. He thought that God had created the uh, political order in a hierarchical, stable way, and the idea of the peasants thieving and murdering and undermining the political structure of society was anathema to Luther. Luther said that the German nobility would be perfectly justified in cutting them down and that this should be repressed mercilessly. So his work on the murdering, thieving hordes of peasants justifies the violent suppression of these peasants. For Luther, justice in this world was always retributive. It was not to uh, to rehabilitate people. It was to give them back what they deserved. There was a definite idea of, of a strict authoritarian justice in this world as being the only way to keep the lid on this boiling pot. Um, as he wrote in one of his pieces, it's a beautiful image, he says, frogs must have their storks. God didn't create storks for no reasons. There's a reason why, and frogs are it. So frogs should behave themselves, elsewise they will be impaled. <laughs> right? So he is... 
He is not a democratic political thinker, and yet there are few people who have done more to advance the cause of political freedom in the Western political tradition. He himself was an authoritarian thinker, but later generations of Protestant thinkers, and these are in the ne next few generations, uh, uh, 20, 30, 50 years later, started to draw implications from the Lutheran reading of the Bible and from his anti-clerical tendencies, which were radical in their implications. And Anabaptism is an example of that. Um, there are a whole series of Protestant sects which are generated in the wake of Luther's work, which Luther would have thought atrocious. He would have thought them evil because they were a threat to political stability. He was not intending to democratize politics here. He wanted to free or to liberate theology. He wants to free your soul, not your body. He still wants you to pay taxes to the same person, pretty much, so long as they don't do something wicked and papal with it. So Luther, while he himself is a seminal thinker in the West, refused to draw out the implications of his own doctrine. It was only in subsequent generations that those doctrines were worked out. And this, I would be inclined to say, is what's important about the Lutheran Reformation. The reason why Luther is one of the pivotal figures in the history of Western thought is because he does something for us that was absolutely necessary to the subsequent development of intellectual life. He legitimized the individual ego, and that is oh so important. Prior to Luther, there had been a Sorts a sense of corporate community. You were part of a group of people, a family, a town, a village, and in the process of being part of this corporate community, being part of the church, one's identity was largely corporate. It wasn't quite as individualistic as Luther's direct connection to God will be and direct infusion of God's faith will be. And more importantly, it sets the stage for later developments in the history of Western thought. The difficulty in seeing the connection between the liberation of the individual soul that we get in Luther and the, individual, and the liberation of the individual citizen that we will see in the Enlightenment is the connection between these two is in some respects disguised by the fact that Luther couches his arguments in theological terms, but by the time we get to Locke or to other thinkers, natural rights, social contractarian thinkers of the Enlightenment, these ideas will be largely secularized. But if you can make allowances from the move, uh, between the movement of or the argument made in theological terms to an argument made in secular terms, you will see a direct connection between the democratizing and liberating tendencies of the Lutheran Revolution and the democratizing and liberating tendencies which are extended over a much wider domain when we come to the political theory of the Enlightenment. I'd make the argument that when Luther legitimizes the individual ego, by faith alone, by scripture alone, you are responsible for your own salvation. When he eliminates the impediments presented by the church and a, and a corrupt uh, uh, clerical group to your connection to God, what he has done is liber liberated just your spiritual and soul aspects. What is going to happen in the Enlightenment is that this soul will be turned into the Cartesian cogito, if you know Descartes' Discourse on Method, or if you know Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy, the ego that is left when he begins to examine himself is, in fact, a legacy of Martin Luther. It is the free individual self that has been turned into a legitimate 
uh, locus of political demands by Martin Luther. Luther didn't intend it to be political in its implications. He didn't understand the wider secularizing implications of his step. He was attempting to liberate the soul so it could get nearer to God. It turns out, however, that in the history of Western thought, unintended consequences are at least as important as the intended consequences. And what Luther did by making this argument, sola fide, sola scriptorum, he changed the center of moral responsibility from the group to the individual. And when we continue the trajectory of that domain, uh, of that argument, and when we extend it beyond the bounds of religion to the bounds of politics, or morals, we will find that this is the foundation of what will be turned in uh, of what will be turned into the political theory of the Enlightenment. Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers is the initial wedge that gets driven into the unity of scholastic society and scholastic philosophy. When he splits off the church from the body of, West, uh, of believers, when he splits off the priesthood from those that are saved, what he is beginning to do is split off all arbitrary hierarchies from the mass population, from the citizenry as a whole. So I will close with this observation about Luther. It is arguable that Luther is a sort of bridge between the static society and the static self of the Middle Ages, the imitatio Christi of medieval monasticism, to the modern, or characteristically modern, idea of the rights of man. The bridge between the static world of the Middle Ages, which was corporate and collective, and the modern world of the individual, and which rights of citizenship are extended to all within the domain of human society, is an extrapolation and a radicalization of Luther's freeing of the individual ego. So he is a step, only a half step, but a half step towards the universal rights of man, which will be developed in the next two or 250 years, and will reach their fruition, not not in the Protestant Reformation, but in the French Revolution.